Well, good morning. John chapter 11. You can be coming back to in your Bibles this morning and finding verse 17. This is our third week spent looking at the day when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. We stopped a couple of weeks ago to try to take an overview of this entire event, this entire account, to see why this is such a crucial point in John's gospel. Uh, last week we looked at the first 16 verses and took note of what we see about our Lord there. We saw that in Jesus Christ we have one whose timing is utterly perfect in our lives, even when we can't see it. We saw in Jesus Christ a king who reigns over all and yet who is our greatest friend. He is the lover of our souls. This morning we're going to try to take the rest of the account uh, at once, verses 17 to 44. We've read this now a couple of times as we read that portion again. What I hope you'll notice is a concept that we have not drawn special attention to yet. I hope you'll notice the concept of life and just how central the idea of life is, not just to what Jesus is going to do, but to what he says. Obviously, life is central in a passage where Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. But I think we're focusing poorly here if we fixate on the act of his resurrection of Lazarus alone and ignore especially the conversation that comes before it in verses 21 to 27. Just notice with me before we read, uh, verse 23, Jesus tells Martha that her brother will rise again. Martha is going to misunderstand how immediately that is going to apply to her brother. But notice that Jesus responds in verses 25 and 26, not with clarification about the timing of his planned resurrection, but rather with clarification about the relationship between him, Jesus, and death itself. That's what he clarifies. We could put this bluntly this morning and say what we're going to find here is that there is more than just one kind of life. And there's more than one kind of death. We're led to think this morning about two kinds of life and two kinds of death. And while we will see that our Lord is not at all indifferent about either one, he cares deeply about both of them. The two kinds of life and the two kinds of death we're going to find this morning are not of equal significance. Death in either form is a great enemy to God and to God's people, and Jesus shows this morning his righteous hatred of it in all its forms and his power over that death. But his behavior here in what we see this morning is going to show us that he walked in utter clarity as to the kind of life and the kind of death that matter fundamentally. Let's read verses 17 to 44. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John 11, beginning in verse 17. John continues in this way. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, 
But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We have a great deal to look at this morning. And the way that we'll do this is we'll do it by focusing, really, for most of this time, on each of these sisters in turn. Jesus meets with Martha in verses 20 to 27, you see, and then with her sister Mary in 32 to 38. And all of them then go to the tomb together. It's the progression of this. That's the way that we'll progress through our time this morning. Let's start by looking at Martha. It's not hard to notice that she and her sister are sort of distinguished from each other. We'll notice it even more when we look at Mary. Martha immediately rises and goes to meet Jesus when she hears that he has come. And in verse 21, we hear from her two statements. 
first thing she says when she reaches her Lord is she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think of what she understands to be true to be able to say that. There's a clear recognition there, isn't there, of his ability to heal the sick. She knows that he was able to heal Lazarus if he had been there. But there's even more than that. Uh, There is a clear assumption in her mind of his willingness to heal. She knows if Jesus had been there, Lazarus would not have died. This is what she confesses. But then there's an addition to that statement of hers in verse 22. So we have, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then we have, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now for some, that sounds to them like she's already thinking resurrection. Can you see how it might sound that way? An insinuation under her words? Maybe revealing a hope that Jesus might in fact bring Lazarus back to them on this day? Many have heard that here in what she's saying. It's difficult to make that kind of a judgment about what she is intending. I do think, though, that it's possible. We know how good we are at this. It's possible that we hear that here because we know what's coming next. And one thing that really works against it is verse 39. You remember what she's going to say when he goes to the tomb and and tells them to roll away the stone. Uh, If her hopes are already going toward resurrection and the notion of physical resurrection on that day, then when Jesus commands the stone to be moved, I would think, again, this is speculation too, but I would think she would be almost giddy with excitement. She had wondered about this. She had suggested to him. But instead, what we see is very genuine confusion on her part. Uh, And it's she who tries to persuade Jesus against moving the stone. In fact, she speaks, and not with a future tense like it gives us here. She says, already there is an odor. He already stinks. That's not an airtight seal there. I don't know how close they are, but it seems they can smell this man already. Jesus, you don't want to roll that stone away. So I'm not sure that she has resurrection in mind when she says this to her Lord. But just think about it. If she does not have that in mind, can I suggest to you that that might make what we hear from her in 21 and 22 actually more beautiful? Because Martha is confessing then two things. She's confessing a genuine grief and loss That's coming with the knowledge that Jesus could have prevented this from happening had he chosen to. But right alongside of that, what we're hearing is a declaration that her confidence in Jesus has not been shaken. And this is a declaration then of her steadfast conviction that Jesus is in fact in the very union with God that he has been claiming. That's remarkable. When our my convictions, when they're true and able to be put on display, when is that more powerful a display than when they're expressed right in the midst of tragedy? And that's when my faith is most put to the test. And so for her to, dis- to declare this faith in Christ in the face of the loss of her brother is a beautiful thing for us to hear. 
Now, in a few minutes, we'll need to contrast that with what Mary says, because this is going to be very relevant to how Jesus reacts to Mary. But before we get there, we have something profound to deal with in verses 23 to 27. I can say with no hesitation that this is the central piece of the text before us this morning. Look at what we see there. Martha has honored Jesus in what she's just said in 21 and 22. She clearly loves him. She clearly trusts him. But the question is, does she understand him in the way that John has by now revealed him in this gospel? Does she understand him in the way that Jesus has increasingly been putting the question to those who know him as to who he is? You could think of it this way. What grade do we assign to Martha for the confession that she just gave in verse 22? I think in a sense, she definitely passes, right? Surely there's no failing grade there. But does she get an A plus or does she get a B minus? What does she get? There's the question. I think that we're meant to give her a B minus. And here's why. Martha speaks of Jesus' works there and what she confesses in ways that suggest or that, that are very much like how you would speak about any human prophet. She speaks of his work as if he was somehow passive in them. The things he does, he does by asking the Father and the Father granting his request. This is what she emphasizes there. And there's some things that, about what she says that are very right. She's certainly right in describing what we've seen, the inseparability between them. There is no work that Jesus does that is done independent of the Father. And it's been a big deal to him. We've heard him confess that many times. But we have to remember that Jesus has been increasingly revealing to those around him his divinity. What Paul describes in Colossians 1 and then again in Colossians 2 as the fullness of deity dwelling bodily. This is who Christ is. And as he has come to reveal God and to bring God to a people walking in darkness, this is who he is revealing. And it's specifically his divine authority and power that has been the emphasis lately. Just think of what we've seen in the last couple of chapters. Jesus said in John 10, 18 of his life, I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. 10.28, I give my sheep eternal life. 10.30, I and the Father are one. 10.38, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. 11.4, talking about this, talking about Lazarus and everything that was going to happen. He said, this illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So the entire goal here in Jesus' own words as to what's happening with Lazarus is for Jesus to be put on display for who he is. John 11, 11, I go to awaken him. This is how he spoke to his disciples. Now Martha says in verse 22 that what Jesus does is the result of God's granting of his request. It's not wrong, but it is a statement that does not mention any of that emphasis on Jesus' own divine authority. B minus, there's some tutorial work that can be done to up this grade. So 
here goes the teacher. He says to her in response, verse 23, he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha, again, confesses agreement with him, verse 24. But again, an agreement that, that has no recognition of Jesus' place in it. She says, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Just like verse 22, it's a statement that demonstrates trust in the God of life, doesn't it? But it does not demonstrate awareness that she is speaking to the God of life. And so what would we expect to find then in verses 25 and 26? But a declaration from our Lord of himself as the giver of life, as the object of belief. He responds to her like this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is what she must understand. This is what must come into her confession. And so the question is put to her, do you believe this? Do you sense how important this moment is in Martha's life? In these seconds between his question and her response? I don't suppose there were a great number of seconds there, but that's a crucial moment in Martha's life. Do you believe this? Has Christ's tutorial work paid off? And the answer is unreservedly yes because of verse 27. What does she say now in response? Another agreement and another confession, but a confession about him, about who he is, and a remarkable one at that. She says, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, that's the Messiah, that's the very confession that Jerusalem has already determined. You say this, you're out of the synagogue. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God, she says. That is kingship language. Language that Jesus used of himself, language that goes deep into the Old Testament. I've decided for us not to go and read in Psalm 2 for the sake of time, but if you're interested, you need to look at 2 Samuel 7, 14, where God speaks concerning the coming son of Solomon and says, he will be to me a son, and speaks of his reign enduring. And you need to compare that with Psalm 2, where we have these amazing statements of the son, a son, a son, one who stands with Yahweh, one who is to be trembled before, one who has been given all the nations and the ends of the earth as his inheritance. The Son of God, this is, the, this is kingship language, speaking of the one that God has installed on his holy hill. Martha says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are, quote, the one who is coming into the world. The one we've been waiting for. The hope and rescue and salvation that God's been pr promising when he sends his rescuer into the world that we've been waiting for, it's you. It's you. Now we can go in and change her grade and give her that elusive A+. Now one more thing remains before we compare this with what we see from Mary. Notice what exactly it is that Jesus is teaching her as he is gently 
correcting Martha's thinking. We see it in verses 25 and 26. He identifies himself with two things. And that's very important for us to understand here. Two things, not one thing. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he words this very deliberately. You've ever wondered why we put it this way in our English Bibles? It's kind of awkward. I am the resurrection and the life. But we put it that way because we have to, because he has worded this grammatically in a way that requires that we hear him to be saying two different things. He is not saying two things about one. He's speaking of two different things. You could do both of those very easily. You can use two words to be referring to the same person or the same group. He could have easily done that. In fact, that's what he does in the next verse, in verse 26, when he says, all those who live and believe in me, that's all those who, and then you've got two participles with one article before it. That forces you to understand that he's not talking about two groups when he says, those who live and those who believe in me. Those are two descriptors of one group. That's one group of people. He could do that, but he does exactly the opposite in verse 25 in a way that distinguishes these two things. And I want to suggest to you that what he's distinguishing between has everything to do with two different senses of life. That is to say, he's talking about physical life and spiritual life. He begins with one statement, I am the resurrection. A concept that inherently speaks of physical life. Martha, you believe Lazarus will physically rise to life one day, and you are right. That life will not come to him apart from me, because I am the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection, and then he says, and I am the life. There's more than just this physical life that you're hoping for. In me is life itself. Jesus is not just the giver of or the possessor of physical life. He is the giver of all life. John told us this in the first chapter, didn't he? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's speaking here of life in terms that go beyond simply physical life. And if you understand him to be doing that, you can recognize that he then makes a comment about each of them in what he says next. End of verse 25, he says, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. There's a statement concerning physical life and physical death. He's acknowledging the reality that those who believe in him die in this way. They die physically, just like Lazarus lies in the tomb for the fourth day. And so what Jesus says there is that those who believe in him will one day, future tense, live again. And then in verse 26, he says, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is not dramatic speech on Jesus' part. It's not contradiction. He's not talking about exactly the same thing. He's speaking there about this life that goes beyond physical life. He's speaking of spiritual life. Everyone who possesses spiritual life, which notice here, is inseparably connected with believing in him. He says of them, they shall never die. 
My friend, how clear are you this morning in the way that you think about the fact that physical life is merely one limited manifestation of life? And how clear are you in your mind about the fact that physical death is merely one limited manifestation of death? There are three times in the book of Revelation that it speaks about the, what it calls the second death. The first two are in Revelation 2 and Revelation 20. And neither one of them even say what it is. They don't even tell us what the second death is. All they say is, how blessed are people who will not be touched by it. But the third time, <clears throat> the third time is Revelation 21. It comes up, and there we do have it explained to us. It speaks of those who, it says, uh, have not conquered. And at the same time, it calls them those who have not thirsted for Christ and his righteousness. And it says of them, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We're talking about the sorts of separation that are associated with the eternal torments of hell. The state of existence in which one is separated forever from any experience of God's kindness, His mercy. Oh, they are not separated from God entirely. Don't make that mistake. God is very much present in hell. Who do you think is keeping it in existence? Whose wrath do you think is being poured out there? They are not experiencing all uh, they're not escaping all experience of God, but they are, for the first time in their lives, learning what it is to be without a trace of his forbearance, his mercy, his patience. They're finding to their everlasting horror that this God, whom they have spent their life hating, whom they've spent their life thinking it right and wise to run from, now they find for the first time in their lives that every moment that they lived on this earth, they were basking in a wealth of undeserved mercy and kindness and blessing. To live separate from that blessing, that is death. That's death. That is what the separations of physical death are a mere singular manifestation of a dim picture of. I hope that it's clear, none of this at all suggests that the loss and separation and suffering found in physical death is insignificant in Scripture. It most certainly isn't. And Jesus goes on to demonstrate his own grief at physical death. You think of Psalm 116, which tells us, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And that's speaking of physical death, isn't it? But the question is, maybe put this way, what do you think that he thinks when he sees us grieve about physical death in a way appropriate to grieve about the second death? What might that reveal to him as he sees it in terms of our understanding of who Christ is? And I would say to you, we actually don't have to wonder because all we need to do is look at Mary and look at his interaction with Mary. Mary, who could show no 
joy or hope at the news that Jesus had arrived in verse 20? Mary, who speaks to Jesus in verse 32 and says something so similar to her sister that it only serves to shine a particular light on the difference between them. Look at verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. End quote. This is what she came to say. And now she lays there on the ground, weeping. And in that posture, it tells us she looks exactly like the Jews who had accompanied her there. This is a word, weeping that emphasizes a loud, moaning kind of, uh, kind of grief. Her words, now notice this as well, her words that we just read are the same expression. They are identical, in fact. The, the identical expression of grief and loss as what we heard from Martha. But what is conspicuously absent is any of the accompanying hope or trust in Jesus. Do you think it's a coincidence on John's part that he tells us of the fact that Mary's words are an exact copy of the first part of Martha's statement? The whole point here is the fact that she's not coming with the second part. And of it, Jesus, here's what we, we see in terms of response. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It's her weeping that he sees here. That troubles him. Not simply the fact of her crying. I doubt very much that Martha came to him with a dry face. It's not the crying. It's the manner of what she is doing. At the side of it, it says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And we have to hit the pause button here and make sure that we're understanding this reaction correctly. Mary and the crowd are doing here what was the habit of the day in their society. They were expressing grief in a noisy, unrestrained way. Wailing, falling, the louder the better. People who could afford it would hire professional wailers to come and help with this, to put this uh, effect on. And what, what is the effect of that? And this is highlighting a sense of utter despair, isn't it? And loss. And this is what Jesus sees when Mary comes to him, and he is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. What do you think of when you hear the phrase deeply moved? When I hear that phrase, what I think of is times when someone else's emotion leads me to feel the same way that they do, kind of a joining in the same emotional state. So I'm in a neutral state, someone gives a passionate speech, praising a person, and I'm deeply moved. What's that mean? That means that I, I, I was led to share in that state of wanting to praise that person, right? That's what that means. I'm fine driving in the, in the car, and there's a terribly sad song that comes on, and I'm deeply moved by it. That means it's produced in me the same feelings of sadness. That's what that expression means. And my friends, if that's what you're hearing here, the message has gotten lost in translation that is not what it's telling us here about Jesus. There is some debate about the exact meaning of the word here that's translated deeply moved in a great number of our English translations. But one thing is for sure, it's not saying that Jesus was moved by their displays of deep sadness 
to join into that sadness. And there's, I, I read some pretty surprising uh, words from a great number in terms of their intensity on this, on this point. D.A. Carson said, it is, it is lexically inexcusable that we have put it the way that we have. I'll give you a quick quote from R.C. Sproul. He wrote about this. Uh, he said, I have to wonder whether the actual meaning of the original Greek bothered the translator so that he didn't want to be exact in translating the term. I say this because the force of the verb here is much stronger than is indicated by the word. A more accurate translation would be, Jesus was irate. Jesus saw everybody around him weeping and groaned in anger. That's one of the two possible ways to take the word here. It either means something like that, furious, or it could mean something like deeply disturbed. But either way, the point is quite clear. Jesus was not here noticing appreciatively the way that they were mourning. He was disturbed by what he was seeing. Disturbed, and as the second indicator tells us, deeply troubled. And there's two parts to his response to what he sees here with Mary. If you don't mind, I'll actually take them in reverse order. One thing he does in response is he weeps. And one thing that's noteworthy is to understand that John doesn't even use the same word here to describe what Jesus is doing as the word that he used to describe Mary and the crowd. They are doing a particular thing, wailing demonstratively, and that is not what Jesus does. He breaks out in tears, but he does not participate in the same kind of weeping that they are. It is a noticeable thing he's doing. The crowd sees it and even speculates about it. But it's not at all like what they are doing. It does show a sadness, though, doesn't it? The question is, sadness at what? The second part of his response, he weeps. The second part, which is really the first part that we see, is he immediately wants to know where Lazarus is buried. Do you notice that? He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? This sight and his reaction to this sight puts him into urgency mode to get to the tomb. Now, why? There's really two choices here. Uh, maybe he is urgent to get to the tomb because he is so moved by their grief that he becomes all the more urgent to raise Lazarus, to give him back to them, to take away their grief. That's one option. There's another option. Usually when people give you two options like this, you can bet that they're going for the second option, right? Another option is that he's urgent at this point, at the sight of what he has just seen, because he is so disturbed at the despair that is on display, while life itself is standing right in front of them. It's unbelief that is upsetting him. It's failure to recognize what God has done in sending him that is upsetting him. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, why couldn't it be both? Couldn't it be both? He wants to take away the unbelief that he's seeing, but he also wants to remove their grief from them. And in a sense, I'm fine. I have no doubt that both are at play in Jesus' mind in terms of, I don't believe that his friend's sadness has no effect on him. We should recognize tenderness in Jesus' heart as he's seeing people he cares about. 
But I worry that what's at stake here, even if we try to hold them both up as equally in play in Jesus' mind, is that we might wind up misunderstanding the very emphasis that John has been going to great pains to convey to us. And not just here, but for a long time now. What have we seen in Jesus up to this point? Was it, has it been his friend's temporal happiness that has driven him up to now? When he learned of Lazarus' illness at the start of this chapter, what was his driving concern? You remember what we saw in verses 5 and 6? He loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Are we supposed to hear that he cared nothing for the grief and sadness and fear that he knew they were experiencing right then? Of course not. But what we are supposed to notice is that he is not being driven in his ministry for a central concern of their temporal happiness. And he proceeds to say to his disciples there that the end goal of this illness is that the Son of God may be glorified by it. My friends, Jesus has not come to them on that day to make his friends feel better on a particular Tuesday afternoon, if this was a Tuesday. He has come to save his friends from the second death by bringing them eternal life. And if they do not know who he is, if they do not love him so that they run to him for the life that is found nowhere else than in him, they're going to die in their sins. John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. This is his concern that drives him. This is the love he has for them that drives them, that they would know him. And see how that fits with what he then does at the tomb. Go down to verse 41. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. In a way, this is such an odd prayer. (laughs) He thanks God for hearing him, but then he even says out loud that he's only speaking this on account of the people standing around. How often do you see that? What is his goal here? He tells us again what his goal is. He's doing all of this so that they may believe that the Father has sent him. He's working in that moment to fix the problem that he's just been gaping at before they came to the tomb. It's not a new problem. It's the same problem that brought him into the world to begin with. A people living in darkness. Well, maybe this will help this people who are standing before the light of the world and acting like it's still dark. Maybe this will help them to wake up to the implications of his coming into the world. Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. It's not a driving gesture whose aim was to take away their sorrow on that day. Of course, it does do that, doesn't it? Jesus' works are the works of the Father. Jesus is the display of God's love. And the works that he's doing drive back the effects of the fall and the curse. So, of course, sorrow is being driven back. But the aim of this gesture is to signify. This is the last sign 
that Jesus will perform in this gospel. It's what D.A. Carson calls an acted parable of the life-giving power of Jesus. It's just a parable. It's just a small taste of what Jesus is actually offering in its fullness. It's a more profound picture than the healing of the lame man was, or the healing of the man born blind was, but it is still, like them, a picture. And this is something that Carson points out very well. I didn't see anyone else draw this out. Listen to what he says here. He says, The raising of Lazarus is an acted parable of the life-giving power of Jesus. It is not more than that. It is not of a peace with, and then he gives two things that it's not. It's not of a peace with the resurrection that takes place at the end of the age, nor with the infusion of the life of the kingdom. And this is a place where the two categories we were talking about of life and the two categories of death come into play. Carson is saying that eternal life is what's on display in two places, one in each realm. Eternal life is on display in the physical realm when we are raised to life on the last day. In resurrection bodies, imperishable, fit for eternity. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us all about this. When's the first time that that happened in the physical world? where That eternal life is manifested in that way. The first time that happens is at Jesus Christ's resurrection. When he rises from the grave as the first fruits of many brothers, it tells us. So eternal life is on display there at the last resurrection. And eternal life is on display when someone is made spiritually alive in regeneration and conversion. This is a display of neither of those. When Jesus rises again from the grave, he rises with a true resurrection body, raised in newness of life. Again, go to 1 Corinthians 15 for the description. He doesn't need help getting his grave cloths unwrapped when he rises from the grave. He has them neatly folded in a pile. His body can appear in a room when all the doors to that room are locked. There's all kinds of mystery wrapped up in the resurrection body that Jesus rises with. Lazarus is brought back to this manner of life, which if you want to be really depressing this morning, you could describe as Lazarus gets to return to the process of slowly walking towards death. That's what he gets. There's going to be another funeral for Lazarus at some point in his future. If he goes first, his sisters will grieve his loss again, and they won't get him back four days later. This miracle is a great kindness from the Lord, but still its intent is to demonstrate something, to demonstrate the true power of Christ and the true life that he is offering. And as we move to closing this morning, I would just have us maybe marvel at this for a minute. As we consider this on both levels, consider what this means on the spiritual level. If you, if you belong to Christ this morning, if he has opened your eyes to see your hopelessness without him, your guilt rightly before a perfect and holy God whose standard is himself, the kindness of his offer in Christ to actually wash away all of that guilt and sin as his son takes it in your place at the cross. If you've come to see and to cling to him for life, what that means is you have been given a gift of life when you came to know him 
by faith that is a more profound gift of life than Lazarus just got at the resurrection. You can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. My friend, you have been reborn. That rebirth demonstrated there is in the physical realm, excuse me, in the spiritual realm, not what Lazarus just received, but what your, uh, what your resurrection to eternal life will be at the last day. That is the physical counterpart to what you experienced spiritually at your conversion. It is then that you will have a new body that finally matches the new you. And consider it then as well on the physical level. Because the, the final, the true renewal, the inbreaking of eternal life in the physical realm that your departed loved ones in Christ are awaiting today is the same one that Lazarus continues to wait for today. And what all this can do for us this morning and this may be necessary God is powerful in the way he works through his word. This may actually encourage in us an entire paradigm shift as to the way we think and speak about life and death. I mean, this is a real opportunity that God's given us this morning to reflect. What are the ways that I've accidentally adopted a way of thinking and speaking about life and death that completely mirrors the world around me? Dennis gave us an old expression in Sunday school. Here's a newer one. Uh, do you know what YOLO means? You see it on t-shirts? Hashtag YOLO. YOLO means you only live once. That's what that means. Do we share with the world a you only live once mindset that grabs what enjoyment it can in this life? Because YOLO. Do I speak about my brothers and sisters in Christ who have been brought to the Lord before me as if they are not currently and truly living now in his presence? Truly, they are not alive bodily for now, but they are very much alive. They are departed. And if the Lord does not soon return, we will join them shortly. And all of us will be quite excited at the return trip when the Lord brings us with him and reunites us with a then perfect body and we go right back on living in every sense forever. Do we think about the end of our lives on this earth as if those things are not an upcoming part of our story? There are many potential places like that where we might just need to scratch a bit at the surface to uncover thinking that our mind needs turning away from. And as we do that, as the Lord leads us to do that work, because of what he's shown us in his word today, you know what that means? That means that Jesus' very purpose, on a particular day of the week in Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem, continues to be achieved 2,000 years later. Because it brings us into obedience with what Dennis read to us this morning in Sunday school, 1 Peter 1, 13. Set your hope fully 
on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are abundantly grateful. And forgive us for the ways that we are often unaware of this, but sometimes more than others, you just make it very evident. The ways that you are so powerfully working through your living word today in the lives of your children. Lord, we thank you that you continue so patiently to bear with us, to know our frame, to lead us as our good shepherd so kindly and gently. But Lord, help us not to fail to hear your voice as you speak to us in your word. And this morning, we thank you for this, this reminder of the realities that go far beyond what we can see now, but do not go beyond what you have revealed to us. Father, make us very content and eager to trust your promises, to trust you when you tell us what life is. Help us, Lord, to set our hope firmly on the grace that will be revealed to us at the revelation of your Son. And we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Help us to trust your timing at every moment in our lives, knowing that your purposes are good, your timing is perfect. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together once more. We have the chance to respond to our Lord.